into chapter 20. So I'm going to read the entire chapter of 2 Samuel. Now there happened, oh, sorry. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left, there, left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together with me, sorry, to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed for him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he himself um, get himself, sorry, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to, the, to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And he went forward, as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And, the, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by, Amasa's, by Amasa and, he said, excuse me, and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw, the man, the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled, assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel Beth Makkah of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart. And, there, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you, to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are, in a, are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, 
And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok, Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. Okay, that was a mouthful for me this morning. I don't know why. Um, so let's recap. Even though only a few verses have passed since what we read last week, let me recap what happened because it was very dense. And it's important that we understand David and what he's thinking here. After, if you recall, Joab smacks him around and says, wake up, you have a duty as a king. David responds quite admirably. He realizes right away that he is very unpopular and he needs to begin to rebuild his support in Israel because now he's king, but he's still very unpopular. And he sets about, at the, right after he leaves Joab, he, he creates four different alliances at the end of chapter 19. And those alliances are very interesting because they tell us, if we don't read it carefully, we're, we come away thinking David is really a good, popular guy, but he's actually struggling and he knows he's very unpopular, so he makes alliances, like in Survivor, to stay alive. So the first thing he does is he goes to Judah, and he says to the tribes, listen, I've already won. How come you've been so slow in endorsing me? Now that I've won, I should have got my phone call and my handshake saying, congratulations, Mr. President. Well done. So he says, where are you? You're my people. How come you haven't come to me yet? Of course, Judah was where Absalom revolted from. So Judah, his own tribe, is divided against David. So he goes and says, shame on you, but here is my olive branch to you. He kicks Joab out of his role as general of the army, which is a very risky move because the people still call themselves Joab's men. So Joab is popular. So David says, I, I want to extend an olive branch to Judah. So I'm going to make Amasa the leader of the army. If you know, Amasa was leading Absalom's army. So what David is doing is he's saying, I need the alliance here. I need Judah to be on my side. So I'm going to take my enemy's general and put him in charge of my own army so that they see, similar to what a prime minister would do, you know, you bring some people who are unpopular into your cabinet to try to appease the, the minority government or whatever. Well, this is what he's done. It's a very risky move. But it's not just that. The next person he meets, because he meets three people while he's walking, one of them is a guy named Shimei. You may remember, he's the guy who was from Saul's family, who a few chapters earlier was throwing rocks at David and calling him a son of blood, right? A man of blood. And... He comes groveling to David now. I realize you're the king now, so I better come and make amends. And Abishai wants to kill him, as the sons of Zariah usually do. But David says, no, no one will die today. It's a good day. So what David is doing is he knows he needs to make as many enemies friends as possible. So I'll forgive them. I'll forgive him. Then he meets Mephibosheth. If you recall, that's his best friend Jonathan's son. And a few chapters earlier, he had been told that Mephibosheth was using Absalom's revolt as an opportunity to lay claim to the crown himself. Now, we're not told if this is true or not, but now what happens is Mephibosheth comes to David and says, it was all fake news, fake news. It never happened. It was just Ziba. He was just lying, my servant. It's not true, but do whatever you believe is true, is right. David, without even questioning, forgives him. Is David being magnanimous? Is he being a good guy? Or is he realizing, 
I need to make friends. And then the next person he meets is Barzillai, who is an older man who's wealthy, he's a landowner, and has been always faithful to David. And David says, come with me to Jerusalem, be part of my government. He says, I'm too old, take my son. So he does. But David now has made allies with Judah, with two members of Saul's family, and one of the wealthiest landowners in all of Jerusalem, in Israel. He's not an idiot. He knows he needs the support. So then, after this is all done, we then get a, a snapshot into some of the bigger problems that lead to this revolution we just read about. Amidst all this, David is king, and a, a parade of people are escorting him from Manahayim, where he was, to Jerusalem. And Israel, the northern part of the country, says, hey, I don't like that Judah is getting all the attention. So they pipe up and say, hey, Judah, what are you doing? You're one little tribe, two tribes, technically. What are you doing? We have 10 shares in David. We are the ones who should be marching home with them. And Judah says, ah, we're blood-related. We're blood. You guys are just Israelites. So they're bickering about who has the favor of the king because now it's a patronage system, right? I need the king to be on my side. They're tug of war for the king. And into this climate of division and the nation being separated, are now we have this revolt by Sheba. He jumps in and says, Israel, to your tents. Um, so he is capitalizing on this. And we know a lot about separation movements in Canada, right? We've had that sort of a thing happen. We know what it's like when one people feel underrepresented. And it's happening as well. I lived in Alberta the last few years, I assure you. They feel the same way. So it's, we're not too surprised about what's happening. What is interesting, however, is what happens after the revolt. So when, when Sheba comes to be... I'll recount it quickly so you know what's going on in this story. Sheba becomes uh, this rebel. And immediately David says, we have to deal with this. We must, because I'm not in a position where I can let this fester. I can't let opposition grow. So he sends out Amasa out to go get him. Amasa, either by neglect or intent, we don't know, takes too long. He doesn't amass the army fast enough. So David calls on the trusty sons of Zeruiah, which is Joab and Abishai, Abishai specifically. Go and do it for me. And true to their word, those guys are really good at their job. They assemble the army and they march out immediately. Amasa catches up with the army. They're going north to catch this Sheba and they end up having to travel 165 kilometers to get him. And as they're going up, they meet. Amasa joins the army at Gibeon. Joab miraculously appears. He's been deposed as general, but he just shows up. Right? Pretty bold move by Joab. He wants his job again. So he goes, and like, it's kind of like a good old boy thing. You meet a guy, you pat him on the back. Well, in the ancient days, apparently, you'd grab a guy by his beard. Like, hey, you son of a gun. How you doing? Um, so he does this to get him with his right hand, not knowing that Joab pulls the knife out with his left and guts him. Amasa falls to the ground. Joab leaves him there, uh, seemingly to be a point of saying, this is what happens if you try to take my job. And notice that David never rebukes Joab. He just lets him become leader of the army again. It's a good king. It's online, you can't see my face. It's not, not a good thing. But this is what he does. And Joab, again, he's so really good at his job, he then chases Sheba up north. They meet at this, this place of uh, Abel Beth Makkah. And this woman who has clearly been sanctioned to speak on behalf of the city comes out and says, don't destroy the city. We have a long heritage. We got people here. Just, we'll take care of this guy. This woman is nice and brutal. And she says, don't worry, we've got his head. We'll take care of it. 
So Sheba clearly isn't as popular as Absalom because this woman can just simply muster some people to go in, chop off his head, and throw it over the gate. So Sheba is not, this isn't a, a huge movement. But she does it. Joab has accomplished his job. He goes back home, right? And then we know that we are being told that this is the end of something important. And the reason we know it is because the writer of Samuel ends chapter 20 with a recount of who's in David's government. Joab was over this and so on, right? And the only other time he does that is in chapter 8. So these two accounts of who is in, Jer- in David's cabinet mark a unit. So if you look, it's almost like the writer saying, you've hit the end of something here, something new is going to start in chapter 21. Take stock. Where, how did we get here? How did we get to where we are after all the optimism of David becoming king and the optimism even before that of Israel wanting their own king and having these good motives? How did we get to drift so far away from where we are? How did the nation become what it is? And how did David become what they are? I'm going to try to be quick, but I can't say I can do that very well. So we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at how did they drift? So what does it look like? What does drifting look like for a nation and a man? Why did they drift? And then what is the anchor for the drifter? How do you stop from drifting? Okay? We needed that background, so I think it helps. This is like a Game of Thrones. This is like an incredible movie that's going on, and we think we can, movies are better. No, this is such a great story. Anyway, how do they drift? Let me start here by saying this. When I speak of drifting, I am not suggesting that these people or you can drift away from your salvation. If you are saved, I think the Bible's quite clear. You can't unsave yourself because the assumption would be if you could unsave yourself, then that would mean my faith got me saved, so my lack of faith to get me unsaved. It's not the way the Bible works. The moment Christ plucks you out of your place and makes you his, nothing will pluck you from his hand. Nothing. So when we speak of drifting, I'm not speaking of, as a Christian, losing your salvation. What I'm talking about is you losing your joy. Let me explain. In Psalm 51, when David says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, remember that? What he means is, And listen, so many people in this room are probably here, or you've been there at some point. You might be saved, but you're so worried about convoys and vaccines and jobs and sicknesses and family that you're robbed of your joy. You've drifted from God because you're so worried about what's happening in the world or in your life that your salvation is basically, yeah, I've got a ticket, but I'm going to be miserable till I get there. And this is the problem with Christians drifting. Now, of course, you may be a person who thinks you're a Christian, And your drifting is a sign of the fact that you're not a Christian. I'm sorry, Christ is pretty clear. There's many people in that boat. So I'm not saying your drifting is necessarily means you're a Christian. I'm not saying that. But I'm simply saying as a Christian, it's possible to drift away from God without losing your salvation. And that's what we're talking about here. Let me offer one more caveat before we move into the actual text. It's a lot of preamble, but it's important. It's a matter of humility. What I find often is myself and with other people is we want to externalize the text. We want to read the Bible and think it's for somebody else. So we read it and you're, you're thinking, boy, I, could, I know somebody who could hear this sermon, you know. I know somebody who could use a sermon on humility. Um, or we think about when we hear about the decay and the drifting of a nation, it's easy to say Canada's been drifting for years, you know. Or the, the national anthem is, you know, Psalms, you know. And we want to just rant about the country. Stop it. The Bible is written about you being a donkey, not your country. You and I, each of us, we have to take it in and see that as we talk about the country, the nation of Israel moving away and David falling away, 
It's you and me he's speaking to directly. First, now Canada may be drifting away. That's probably true, but let's not jump there before we internalize it, before we push it to somebody else. You have to own it. And the reason this is so important is because if you don't, you're going to never, you're going to become bitter. If you're always externalizing the Bible and thinking it's for someone else, you're going to think in time that you don't need a great high priest. You don't need one because you're good. Everybody else does. And you basically deny the gospel. We need to see that you and I are the problem first. We must approach the text, the Bible, always as humility, always knowing that we are the broken ones it's speaking to. And I say that because I think we're in a dangerous time right now in our country where we have a lot of reason to be angry. It's very simple to think, I know how to interpret things, this guy doesn't. I know what to, what to make of the convoy, this guy doesn't. I know what to make of, the, of vaccines, this person doesn't. And so much of it is us failing to be moored to the word, close to scripture, close to Christ. We move out, and so many of us have surrendered. Fewer people, I find, are going to the Bible to find answers, and instead you're going to John MacArthur, Tim Keller, Alistair Begg, Charles Spurgeon. You're going to health officials. You're going to Jordan Peterson. You don't read the Bible increasingly. We don't read the Bible. We ask somebody to tell us what the Bible says about a topic because, I don't know, we'll get to why, I think. And I'm a little concerned about that for myself too because it's so much easier. Rather than do the hard work of knowing what the Bible says, it's easier to just say, what does John MacArthur say? And I'm not knocking MacArthur. I'm not knocking these guys. These are good, faithful men. But use them as they're meant to be used. Scripture is our first thing, okay? Preamble again, but let me move on. With all of that said, let me also say this. As we read about Israel, the more you begin to realize life is dirty and hard and not two-dimensional. Israel moves. They change. So does David. They're hypocrites. They perjure themselves continually. But hopefully you realize we do it all the time. Our views theologically and in every other way change how many people would say they're different than they were in college? Anyone? Just me? I'm different than I was yesterday. Um, but let me use an example. In college, I knew a lot of people who were very liberal in their, in their politics. But then they got great paying jobs and they became conservatives. And I lost people who were conservatives who then became teachers and in unionized environments. And they became liberals. Right? Because our circumstances, let's face it, they play on us because we are broken. They play on us. It's not, you're not noble. We're not noble people. We follow too often our own self-interest. How many of our theological views we think are firm, firm theology? Until, of course, you get abused by a church, and then your theology changes, and you think, I don't need to be at church to be a Christian, right? Because your experience impacts your theology. Or you go through a divorce, and then your views on marriage change because you've gone through it. Or what if your child or someone you know has come out as homosexual? Then your views about gender and identity begin to change. We are broken people. We're often falling from side to side. So let's approach Israel and David saying, yeah, this is the story of us. We're broken. So let's learn. If we don't do that, we'll never learn from the text. We'll just come as critics to it all the time. So let's approach it and just say, hey, we're, we're normal people like David. And we struggle. Now, with that, I think we're free to jump into the nation. So how has Israel changed in these chapters? Well, let's compare them to who they are now versus what they were when they asked for a king. First Samuel 8, this is 40 chapters ago. If you remember, we, we covered that. 
a lot has changed. See, at that time, they came together. It says all the elders of Israel came as one to Samuel to ask for a king. Now, they're pretty divided. So the differences are no different. You see, Canada is no different than they were. Israel is no different than they were. The difference is something has happened to show us how different we've always been. Now, we allow, Israel is allowing those differences to become divisions. So, they, like David was always from Judah. 37 years he's been king at this point. Why is it an issue now? Because something has happened that allows them to do it. The unity is gone. Aside from that, they went to Samuel with integrity. Remember, they went to Samuel and said, we have a beef. We got a problem with you and your sons. They weren't conspiring. There's no rebellion. They went directly to him like adults, like they should. Not anymore. Now it's, let's support Absalom, let's support Sheba, let's do this. Now they think, even though at the time and in Deuteronomy it says, God will choose your king, they think they can choose their king. There's no assumption that their leader is God-ordained and anointed. Now it's, I should do what I want. I don't like this leader, I'm going to rebel. That's a different approach. Israel has moved. Their theology has changed, their practice has changed. Justice. They wanted a king because they were worried Samuel's sons were corrupt. Remember? That was it. They wanted a just king. But if David becomes the king that they're asking for, he'll be unjust because he's going to support the northerners versus the southerners. So he won't be justice for all. It'll be the justice for the ones who David favors. So they wanted a just king, but now they're trying to make him unjust. That's a problem. Um, and we do the same thing, not just there. They do, we, we do it all the time. Paul Evans is an Old Testament prof here at McMaster. And he says this. It's a warning for us. As Israel sought to leverage their relationship with David to their own advantage, so we can similarly try to leverage our relationship with Jesus. But just as sure as Israel owed allegiance to David as Yahweh's anointed, we owe obedience to Jesus, God's anointed one. We will, or will we, like Israel, abandon Jesus if we feel he has failed to live up to our expectations? Will we, like Israel, think that Jesus is somehow obligated to give us what we want? Such attitudes towards the anointed one forget that Jesus is not only our Savior, but our Lord. We owe allegiance to our king, not the other way around. And he's right. And there's a moment they've strayed. We'll talk about why they strayed in a minute. But they've strayed. They start to think now that the king exists to benefit their little tribe. Moving on. They wanted stability. Remember, the judge, they're coming out of the period of judges, right? Lots of various leaders, lots of instability. The Moabites are coming. Everybody's coming in. They wanted stability. Isn't it interesting? They wanted stability, but they can't seem to get stable. They wanted Saul out so David could be king for a long time. Now David is king, and they want him out. So they want stability, but they can't seem to foster it at all. They revolt. They feel the need, that the king needs to be humbled when maybe it's them who needs to be humbled. And lastly, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, they got exactly what they wanted. Remember they said they wanted a king like every other nation? Well, congratulations. David is exactly like every other king. I'm teaching my kids ancient history right now. We're around this period we're into. Trust me. It doesn't matter if you're in China, India, Mesopotamia, Assyria, Egypt, the Hittites, Mycenaeans, all of them behave just like David. Just like him. The more you know history, the more you realize, boy, we're missing. Something is wrong. It's rotten in the state of well, Israel in this case. So they have, they have strayed. But let's look at the king now. Has David, how has he drifted away? Um, and again, I'm excited for the next point, but let's move into David. So David, he was supposed to be a certain kind of king. And remember, Samuel warned Israel and said, I warn you, this is the kind of king you're going to get. 
And look at how, not just David, but the monarchy, Saul, even Absalom's little stint there as a rebel king, and David. Look at what they've done. First thing, and we, I think I've got slides, but I'm not sure. First thing Saul Samuel said was, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Who did that? Absalom. And the point wasn't to draw attention and say Absalom is going to, he's predicting Absalom. The point is this. People, you will become pawns in the game of thrones. Just as the nation, the, the people, the tribes are vying for David's power and tug of war for who will he favor, the kings are doing the same thing. I'm going to use all my people to make me look better. I'm going to steal hearts, Absalom, some and the other. I'm going to have alliances. The people are going to become pawns in the king's game. That's what's going to happen, and it's happened. The next thing he says, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. The idea being, war is going to be a regular occurrence. You want stability? You want peace? It's not going to happen. Kings fight. And David has announced very clearly that he doesn't know how to live in peace because the moment he says, I'm going to keep Joab around, Joab has now killed who? Let's see, Abner, Uriah, Absalom, and this is just murders. It's what we're not talking about in war. And now he has killed Amasa. And he's done it in such a way as to say, I'm going to kill him so I can stay general. And David doesn't, he never rebukes him. David says, yeah, you know, I can use a guy like this. I don't like him. But until he dies, you know, eventually he will say to, to Solomon, make sure Joab doesn't go to, the, to Sheol uh, in peace. But for now, he's happy to have him. And he announces clearly he is going to be like every other king in the region. I need a knife man. War is the way. What happened to the David who would say, I won't lay a hand on Saul's anointed or on God's anointed? Remember that? He wouldn't kill Saul. He was so trusting that God would give him the crown that he wouldn't move to get it himself. But now that he has it, he's fighting to keep it like every other king. And that poses a theological problem for you and I. What is his responsibility? God gives him the crown. What is David's responsibility to keep the crown? How much fighting does he do? Does he sit back and say, I'm not going to fight anything. I'll let God do it. Like Israel at the Red Sea? Maybe. It's a tricky theological problem. See, and that's why we can't be judgmental of David. How many of you are applying theology to your life perfectly? It's not. It's, it's so difficult. There, life is so much harder. When a woman gets an abortion, it's easy for us to say it's wrong, and biblically it's wrong. But to come out and say that, unfeeling, not realizing there's a human with lives and decisions, is stupid. There's real life here. We have to figure out, yes, the act is wrong, but let's understand how they got there. Let's not just be judgmental. Let's look at people and at the text here as a three-dimensional thing. It's a real, real, real lives, real decisions. Let's move on. David, what else? Samuel warns them, warns them. He will take some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. He will make your male servants and female servants, and the, sorry, take them, and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his, to his work, and you shall be his slaves. This is maybe the most ominous part of chapter 20 of 2 Samuel. At the end, when it's announcing who his leaders are, if you compare that to the one in chapter 8, you're going to see it's identical as far as the same leaders. He's the same ministers in his cabinet. He's changed some names. He's added one role, though. The role is Adoram is now the, the leader oversees slavery, forced labor. That's been added. That wasn't there 12 chapters ago, but it's here now, which tells us that David 
is building an apparatus to keep himself in power. I have an army. I have the Cherethites and the Pelethites. So in other words, he has a mercenary army that he's using as well. He's got slaves to keep things humming along. He's got priests, and he has removed his sons from the priests and put in other yes-men because his sons can't be trusted. David is like every other king. He has somehow moved to a spot where he now wants to hang on to his crown. Right? Now, what else? He will take your daughters and to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take your female servants. Is this a hint? I don't know. Is it a hint of the fact that the kings and David specifically will have problems with women? David is a sketchy character with women. His dealings with Bathsheba and Tamar, now what he does with the, with the concubines, the concubines, the reason he shuts them up is, you know, that he, Absalom had slept with them. These are his secondary wives. They, he has slept with them, and now David seems to think, I'm not sure, we're not sure why he does it. Is it because they're now tainted? Or is it because he's trying to appease the northerners who we know didn't like the fact that he had a harem like every other king in the east? Wasn't supposed to have a harem, but he took one. But for whatever reason, David thinks the right thing to do with these women is to shut them up, I'll feed them, but they're never going to have human contact again until they die. That wasn't acceptable in the ancient world. It would have been seen questionably, and it's still questionable for us. Is there a hint in Samuel telling us that David has a problematic relationship with women? Maybe. Let's move on. That's, you can make of that what you will. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards to give them to his servants, and so on. Well, this is what kings do. They must divert resources to maintain the bureaucracy and the army. You want a nation to defend all these dispersed tribes? I'll do it, but I need an army. And the army has to eat three meals a day. That's a lot of food. Someone's got to bring me food. And David becomes a king like exactly what they asked for. And of course, I've mentioned the wives. David has become like every other king. And of course, it's difficult because he's in a hard spot. I'm not judging David necessarily. I'm simply saying... It is, must be difficult to be king. It must be difficult, especially in the ancient world. How do you live as a Christian? And that's the question we face. How do we live as Christians with this, in a real world? Black and white answers don't work all the time. It's difficult. So that's what they've done. Now we'll move more quickly. Why? Why did they drift? Why did, how is it that they got there? We know physically and, and geographically and historically how they got there. But what was it that led to it? Well, the answer is surprisingly similar. Because remember, the fact that we, call, we say they're drifting assumes that they, were, they drifted from something. Right? There's somewhere they should have been that they're not. So where is that place? What is that thing? What is that, what is that thing they've left? And the answer is unfor- not unfortunate. It's, it's fortunate. It's the same thing for both David and the nation. So with the nation, God is very clear in Deuteronomy. Here's what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Here it comes. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Israel as people were to not just put a sign above their door that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we do, and that's okay. They were meant to actually read the Bible, to study it. Notice what he says when you're sitting, when you're walking, when you're talking. 
The Bible is meant to be something that is so ingrained, so much a part of Israel's people that they're always looking at it in every part of their life. And the reason was God knows what you and I seem to not always get. The moment we take our eyes off Christ, even for a moment, we're in danger. Because drifting, if you're sitting on a lounge, you know, those little inflatables on a beach, and you're sipping your Mai Tai, and you fall asleep, you may not be doing anything, but you're going to be moving. You're going to wake up a mile into the, into the ocean. Because drifting, something is always trying to pull you. And God knows that but people, the more we take our eyes off him, the more we look. The more, I mean, how many of us didn't spend more time reading and watching things about the convoy this week than we did looking at our Bibles? Anyone who didn't? Maybe me, because I have to, it's my job. But most of us. And that is doing something to you. Whatever we look at, we become like. And Israel, God is so clear. You must, as people, everything you do must be ground in the word. And we hear nothing about Israel reading the Torah in the books of Samuel. Is it by accident? No, and I'll show you why in a minute. Because David had the same problem. In Deuteronomy 17, when God gives seven verses to say, this is what kings should do, only seven verses. This is what he says of three of those verses. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. David, listen, this was a, this was a command to the kings. And no king does it until... Well, arguably no king, ever. The first we hear anything even close to an Israelite king having a copy of the Bible and looking at it is Jehoshaphat, 200 years after David, who all it says is he taught people from the Bible. Then we know Josiah found a copy, and Joash was given a copy when he became king. But there's no indication that any king devoured the word of God the way they're supposed to. Isn't it interesting that we think of David as this psalm writer, which he was, as a man after God's heart, which it's in Scripture, he was, and yet, the only biography we have of David that God has given us says nothing about him reading the Bible. Not once does it ever say he read the Torah. Ever. Ever. That's a problem. And so when we look and see why did they drift to where they were, it's, it, I'm sorry, it is a simple answer. They stopped looking at God. Both of them. And the, it's going to get worse for Israel. As we, well, we're not going to go into this kings, but we could. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor and a scholar. He's a PhD in New Testament, so I guess I'd call him a scholar. Here's what he says. Most church people drift away from God, not because they meant to, but because they got busy, they got lazy, they got distracted, they had kids, they got a mortgage, a few illnesses came, then some bills, then the in-laws visited for a week, then the minivan broke down, and before you knew what was happening, the seed of the word of God had been choked out by the worries of life. That's the way it happens for many people. They never dropped anchor. And so they simply floated away when the currents got strong. They used to pray. They used to be interested in the Bible. They used to talk to God. They used to go to church. They never woke up and decided, today I'm going to stop being a Christian. They just drifted. And the reason, and he goes on to use an illustration that I resonate with, which is I used to fly a lot, so I've been on hundreds of flights. And it's after about the second flight, I stopped paying attention to this woman. Didn't you? Like, who listens to this poor woman? I mean, and yet why? 
Why is it that I feel I don't need to listen to her anymore? The reason is, I don't think, first, I'm, I'm confident the plane isn't probably going to go down. Hopeful, right? I'm thinking. The second thing is, I've heard it before. So, if I am so convinced I know what she's going to say that I don't need to hear it again, think about you sitting here listening to me, then why would I ever pick up that brochure and open it up and look at it? I won't even listen to her, let alone pick up the little manual with the guy like fly, falling down the slide, right? Like, if I don't think I need the advice, I won't listen to it, and I'm not going to read my Bible. So the reason is, let's face it, the reason we drift is because we want to. There's no, we can't sugarcoat it here. The reason you and I drift is because we think something else is more important of our time than God. I know it sounds harsh, but this is us. This is why scripture always says, don't take your eyes off me. Put it on your hands, stick it in your face, write it everywhere. It's because God knows us very well. So the reason they drifted is simply because they took their eyes off Christ, off the, off the Bible, off the word that they had. Took their eyes off God. So what is the final answer? Let me end here because I know I've been talking. I feel like I've been talking forever. How, what is the anchor? And the anchor comes again when we let the New Testament in just a little. And the writer of Hebrews beautifully says in chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now let's break it apart really quick. We must. Notice the speaker includes himself in that. This is, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think Paul, some people don't know. Regardless, this is a guy who is writing and telling the church what to do. And he includes himself and says, we must, not we should, we must pay attention. He includes himself in the company of sinners, which we struggle to do, right? We do, I would normally say something like, you should. No, we must. And what must, must we do? Pay much closer attention. This is an effort of the will. You will need to, somebody earlier today said they like to read their Bible at church instead of on an iPad. Because an iPad is pretty distracting, isn't it? It's easy when Carl starts saying something you've heard to say, Facebook. I know, I'm boring sometimes. I appreciate that. I'm okay with that. But distractions, we are pretty prone to wander. So we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What have they heard? The gospel. And we must stare at it. You notice every week, I'm not every week, but I often say we have to stare at scripture. We have to stare at the cross and chew it over and say, what does the cross mean for how we see an envoy? What does the cross mean for what we think about the church and about everything? Every aspect of your life must be passed through the filter of the gospel. We must pay attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away, because there's always something looking to drift us away. And as he goes on, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, carrying this on, he talks about Jesus' Savior. And when he says it, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf. See, the thing we have heard, what we have to keep our eyes on is the promise and continually look at Christ and see he's far more beautiful than anything else. And as we continue to stare at it and read about it, and if you don't know how to read it, send me an email. Petition the elders enough to say, Carl needs to have more time so he can do a Bible study every Wednesday with you guys. Whatever we need to mutually encourage each other to be in the word. Because we have to stare at him. He is the anchor. If we keep our eye on him, it'll be difficult. We'll still, we're still going to drift. It'll be far more difficult to do it. And this is what we're being asked to do. The gospel is infinitely more beautiful than anything else we have to look at, but we just simply don't think we need it sometimes. And again, I'm not knocking these great teachers that are out there that we all listen to and I, I look to. 
you have to be in the Word. If somebody come and put out an article in the CBC about Carl, and they say, well, I've listened to all the sermons, I've listened to him, so I know him, I would have a problem with that. Because you know something of me, but you don't know me. Listening to what other people say about God is okay, it's helpful, but you have to know him. And the only way to meet him, where you know you're not getting a, a watered down, listen, how do you know MacArthur is right? Because he's not always. How do you know Keller is right? He's not always. How do you know Alistair Begg, all these guys, wonderful guys? How do you know they're right? How do you know you're right if you don't even know what the Bible says? You don't know. They could be blowing smoke. The only way is to be anchored in Christ, him first, only. Sermon over. Let's pray.